Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 301 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Today we are super excited to bring you two special guests who happen to be close personal friends, Anthony and Kaz Paternisi of the Salamaria. The Salamaria provides the most nutritious pork-based protein in the form of salumi. Their hogs are peacefully grazing on 250 acres in Rockdale, Texas. Yes, today's episode is going to be a whimsical one with a nice story that ends well, thinking about the beauty of pasture-raised pigs and happy meat. We're going to talk about industry standards and where the Salumaria takes a hard turn, focusing heavily on integrity and quality as the forefront of their business practices. We're going to talk about going with your gut or your intuition when taking a leap of faith on a new business adventure, the importance of pasture raising, and the learning curves of going from a city slicker to a pork farmer and salami maker. Yes, such a fun episode and it will definitely leave your mouth watering and have you ready for your midday salumi snack. Yes, <laughs> and don't worry, we'll share a discount code yes. at the end of this yes, episode yes. because y'all are definitely going to want to try out what they have. You will. All right, let's just have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, NutriSense, before we kick things off. Yes, so NutriSense provides continuous glucose monitors or a CGM that provides you with real-time glucose data. This is going to allow you 14 days or two weeks of consistent information on the trends of your blood sugar based on stress, based on changes that you can see with exercise or movement, as well as diet and supplement strategy. They provide you with a custom app that helps you to understand the trends and information of your CGM, as well as a nutritional professional to help you to interpret, set goals, and troubleshoot blood sugar regulation. Whether you've been told that you're pre-diabetic or you're dealing with type 2 diabetes, or you're just curious about your metabolic flexibility with keto, or really trying to understand the impact of stress on your blood sugar of your body, this is a great way to invest and have great outcomes with results that will have influence from your day to day. So for just $175, you can take advantage of a two-week only non-subscription option when you go to Nutrisense.io slash AllieMillerRD. Also, you can subscribe to their subscription for CGMs and get a discount for $30 off when you use AlliRD on their website. The website, again, is Nutrisense.io. You can use the code AlliRD to save $30 one time off your subscription, or you can scroll down to the bottom of the page if you use the URL, Nutrisense.io slash AlliMillerRD, and purchase a meter for just one-time use. 
I've learned so much personally from using a CGM. It's really helped me to evolve my perspective of metabolic flexibility, understanding that stress for me was truly the Achilles heel. So I saw differences of bringing in GABA Calm and upping my Calm and Clear at times of stress that I could predict, such as wrapping up my clinic and transitioning to full-time mom stuff. I also saw the impact and I see regularly in clinic of our berberine boost, our relax and regulate, and so many different formulas that are either going to aid specifically with insulin sensitivity and blood sugar response, or again, with that stress management, deep qualitative sleep, and really regulating that stress access to help the body to feel safe and to balance blood sugar levels. But the only way you'll know really what's going on inside your body for a two-week window is through using a CGM. We know that a fasting glucose and an A1C is really just a snapshot of data to really understand how your body uses blood sugar as fuel and how balanced your blood sugar levels are, as well as times of high risks and the whys behind them, I definitely recommend checking out NutriSense. So go on over to NutriSense.io slash AllieMillerRD and use AllieRD as a discount code for $30 off one time on their subscription. All right, I'm going to go ahead and read the story of the Salamaria, and then we'll bring Anthony and Kaz on the show. Anthony comes from a long line of salumi makers originating in Rome, Italy. His family bartered and traded for other goods with their salumi. After many hard years in IT and finance, they decided to take the leap into the family business as their son Declan was eager to learn the ropes. Whether it was a young Anthony making salami with his father on the picnic table with a hand crank meat grinder or a young Gerardo butchering a goat with his uncle for a festive occasion. The Salomaria was born inside of its founders at a young age. Traditions and recipes passed down for generations have inspired us. The experience as children seeded a romantic idea of sharing this craft, but it was having our own families that solidified the need to build a Salomaria. Taking what we had learned and turning it into a passion for our children has become the greatest adventure of our lives. We don't measure success by how many pounds of salumi leave the curing chamber, but rather how much joy we observe in our children as the meat cures. The Salamaria has become synonymous with La Familia, and we are happy to invite your family to be a part of ours. Welcome, Anthony and Kaz, to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yes, we are super pumped to have you both on here officially. Obviously, we're dear friends and we see y'all all the time, but we're super excited to welcome you on our platform to be able to share with our audience all things salami, cured meats, and the importance of pasture raised proteins and so much more. Yes, and I think we're going to learn to say it salumi after this podcast, right? (laughs) Um, I'm going to learn that I've been pronouncing everything wrong, but um, let's just kick off and and tell us a little bit about your story and how this business has evolved. Well, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Wow. I don't, it's so difficult to even start this. Um, Once upon a time. Starting from uh, just a few years ago. Um, I've been making salami uh, with my father my entire life, so I've never known a day where I wasn't making. And uh, and I remember uh, I've known Kaz almost my whole life as well. And I remember bringing stuff over to make salami at her house with her dad and her little brother. And uh, we we this has just been a part of us forever. Um, going going into our own parenthood and having uh, little boys, uh, it was natural for me to just pull out the, uh, the manual stuffer and the manual grinder and get 
our, our youngest or our oldest son, who was two at the time, uh, started and making salami. And it just, it just clicked for both of us that, um, what are we doing wasting all of these years with our little ones uh, where I'm behind a desk for 12 to 14 hours a day. I'm working weekends. She's being run ragged. I'm not around. We don't have time together. We don't have time with uh, us as a family. And uh, I just asked uh, Declan, my, my two-year-old at the time, I was like, you know, what do you think? Maybe we should do this all the time. <laughs> and okay. When in doubt, ask your two-year-old yes. for a life, a well, life question. Yeah, he, as long time. as they're not in a no phase. Exactly. Wait till they're in a yes phase. Yeah, no, he vehemently agreed. So <laughs> yeah. thus, the Salamaria was born. Amazing. The whole time he was saying we, I'm like, well, I don't think he's talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was really funny because in that moment, um, I knew, I just knew, I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to do salumi. Uh, I've always known how to make it, but that's about the extent of what I knew. I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know how to source my ingredients. I didn't know how to raise animals. I didn't know anything, but I knew how to make salami. And let's talk about maybe the origins. You mentioned your father, but I know there's some yeah. history all the way back going to Thank Rome, you. Italy. Thank and you. yeah, let's talk about that. So my great grandfather was a salumi and winemaker in Rome. And uh, he was brave enough or silly enough to hop on a boat and come to the U.S. with nothing um, but, his, but his wife and, uh, and the clothes that they had on them. They, uh, they landed in Ellis Island and then uh, with a migration from everybody from that boat, they landed in Cleveland, Ohio, and they set up Little Italy in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And what I mean by Little Italy is not the way we say Little Italy but literally, it was a series of blocks where there were Italian people that never assimilated into the U.S. They never got so. I mean, they never got you know they social security numbers. They never spoke yeah. English. They never got jobs. They never paid taxes. They didn't do anything. They just lived there. And my grandfather's contribution to the community was to cure meats and to give them wine. Uh, the cured meats were particularly important because in the turn of the century, there was not refrigeration. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a really abundant source of meat. So it comes to him. He turns it into a source of protein that can be stored um, on the shelf at any temperature at any time of the year. So he played a really vital role in that community. Uh, and, and as I said before, never became American. My grandfather was born into that and also made salumi. Um, I'll add to that that my grandfather then would also dig ditches or lay roof or tile or whatever he could to make ends meet. He was, in the next generation, it wasn't quite as acceptable to just participate with his direct neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the focus for my father was, you're getting a college education, you're getting the hell out of here. Mm. And so he would make salami with my grandfather and my great-grandfather, but that was to be nothing more than a hobby. And he went to college, became an engineer, and, uh, and the most he practiced salumi making was with me when I was, you know, two or three or four years old until I went off to college. And yet here you are bringing it back full circle <laughs> to become your full-fledged family yeah. Yeah. business. Yes. Um, let's talk about like that transition from the IT and finance world into this as 
your baby business yeah. and, and maybe how you knew it was the time and, and biggest learnings so far. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because I don't know that I knew it was the time. I think um, he did. Uh, but, we, you know, we come from a really small town in, in Florida before we kind of branched off and moved into IT. And, you know, we would always see all of the farmland and I just never in my wildest dreams would have imagined um, we would go from being engineers to, to yeah. doing this. Uh, but once he started down the path, it just seemed like something we should be doing, not only for ourselves, but to make sure we were nourished well, but also just sharing what our passion with everyone else. So. I always tell everybody we're city slickers, <laughs> yeah. learning, learning <laughs> yeah. how to farm. Yeah. To farm. Such a fun process. Let's talk about the transition from learning the process. And as that timestamp of the last couple years, you're also opening your eyes to what is food as medicine, what is clean eating, um, you know, this concept of is meat healthy, what is conventional meat, and coming to realize the importance of sustainable ranching and happy meat, if you will. Um, let's talk about how sourcing and understanding the importance of quality protein plays a role with influencing your ethos and, and your brand, your company. Right. Well. I can say when we started, I mean, luckily I have the benefit of knowing you two so well. Um, I think we've learned a lot from you guys, but, uh, you know, when we were actually going to be eating this on more regularly, especially with, with, you know, Declan, um, being only two at the time and growing, I think we were at the time just really getting meat from just the local grocery store and then recognizing if we're going to do this, even for just ourselves at a larger scale, um, perhaps just organic pork from the grocery store wasn't going to cut it. Um, when, when I was in my early twenties, I ate a lot of, of salami. And I remember telling Kazmira, I think I'm addicted. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I made a very concentrated effort to stop eating it. I am not going to eat salami anymore because it's so bad for me. It's and not, it wasn't just the salami. He used to eat these red Red, they were called red hots. They were like red hot dogs. So they were not only <laughs> processed meat. Well, those probably were addictive. Yeah. Probably I, were. I never committed to giving those up. No. <laughs> now, the real salami, it's probably the, the amandamide. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. actually is a compound in meat that gives you this bliss neurotransmitter mm -hmm. response. So, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, then you that's can real. That, like the was, saltiness. I mean, I, yeah, I'm addicted. Hooked. But I, I remember <laughs> feeling such guilt every time I would mm. eat. Mm. And, and it, it was like, I, you know, it's kind of like if I were to go to eat a bag of Skittles or if I was going to just polish off a bag of potato chips, I would just feel guilty about it. Um, for my own self, I like, what am I doing to myself? Why would I allow myself to harm myself this way? So I, I would, I, I gave up salami. And of course that's, you know, in me as a child, it, it was every single weekend. It was for every, it was for every dinner. It was for every event. It was always there. And so at some point I'm like, I'm giving this up, which was really difficult and really sad and troubling. <laughs> to her point, um, we, we're thinking now, okay, if we're gonna do this, um, we need to make this not a vice, not, not something that you need to feel guilty about. Mm -hmm. and, and to actually live that, we're going to feed this to our children daily. And so, there's so much, this is where the learning, and, I, and I'll let Kaz take over again, but if, we, if we're under the impression that we can't have pork every day, if bacon causes cancer, if we're under the impression that every, everything that we're about to make is um, a negative, then 
we can't continue. Oh, and as a sidebar, before Kaz takes over, uh, we will link for you listeners. I think it's called In Defense of Bacon. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, It's one of my first 10 podcasts. So we're right now talking at episode 301. Um, But that's way back in the archives. And it talks about... Uh, you know, correlation and observation studies in literature and really defends the fact that most of the research behind the smoked meats or processed meats, A, does not delineate quality, but also is looked at from a food record response. And because, like you said, Anthony, that people kind of take this assumption that processed meats or salami, those types of products are demonized or are not a halo health food. They're going to, the healthy people are going to decrease the amount of frequency they eat it. Mm -hmm. The unhealthy people who are also smoking, not exercising, eating other processed foods Mm -hmm. are going to say maybe more accurate. And so we really don't have quality data on any health concerns. And that's, you know, the stance that we take. And then let's talk a little bit more about sourcing and what you've learned. I just want to say thank you for bringing that up. Actually, when I just said bacon causes cancer, I said that with the assumption that your audience knew that wasn't true. But no, I'm glad that you you said that. But if anyone needs sound bites, you know, around the uh, breakfast table with their in-laws on how bacon doesn't cause cancer, you can listen to that episode. Perfect. I love bacon. So when, you know, we were deciding to make this all of the time, I really got on to Anthony about, you know, we... It has to be from a quality place and everything that goes into it, not only the the meat itself, but everything from what will make it shelf stable to the different spices and wines that will go into flavoring the salami has to be something that that I would eat. And then also that we would want, you know, our two year old eating, knowing that we're setting him up for success for the rest of his life, because really, like, in our opinion, the foundation of just building a proper palate starts you know, in when they're young. And so making sure that it's not going to be something that's addictive for him in a bad way um, and that we can feel good about. So, uh, you know, I remember every single step along the process, it would, he'd say, okay, we're going to use this. And I'm like, mm, we're not, no, we're not going to use that. And so just even just an example, like sourcing, you know, how we were going to make it shelf stable. He had to search for a farm in Florida that would make Swiss chard for us to be able to, you know, subs- subsidize, or not subsidize, but yeah, substitute the, cure. the, substitute. the mm-hmm. curing yeah. agent. The curing yeah. agent. Yeah. Love it. That's awesome. And I remember Kaz talking to you, well, a couple times that we got together once I moved to Austin and uh, tasting salami out of your garage. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about before we talk about the pasture-raised pigs and the 200 acres and paint a picture for our listeners of how your meat's being raised. I want to talk about maybe like the scaling and the, the R&D, the yeah. research and design <laughs> that's yeah. kind of phasically uh, shifted. Um, and I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle too. So I haven't, uh, had the opportunity yet to mention our partner, Gerardo Garcia. He is, uh, absolute, um, genius in everything he touches. Uh, you see his, you see the imprint that he's left and we're, we're super, you know, lucky to have him. Uh, he was the first person that we tapped, um, to say, uh, you know, do you want to do this? And at the exact same time that I was asking him that question, I was giving him a taste of a three-year ham that had been curing in my garage. <laughs> and he said yes. <laughs> Next thing you know, um, we're labbing all kinds of recipes all nights of the week starting at midnight. And we're just going through the night working out um, small batches of salami. And so we had um, 10 or 15 or 20 different flavors concurrently curing on a rolling basis 
uh, with all kinds of notes being taken just to come up with uh, those recipes. And that that was in our garage. And so like, if you talk to our neighbors, like at any <laughs> point in time, like they would just, first it started with just this like refrigerator that you could see, it was like a, a drink refrigerator in our garage and the garage would open and like neighbors across the street would be like, what are what they hanging that? pig's leg? <laughs> like hanging pig leg and a, and a bunch of like other, you know, stringed meats, you know, from across the way. And so people still like to tease us about that. And and now we do still have a curing chamber in the house, but it's closed off. Um, but people cu- ask where they went. They ask where the drink fridge went. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that curing chamber in our garage now is a, a walk-in curing chamber that is probably larger than a lot of people might expect a home curing chamber to look yeah, like. because many people have those <laughs> and that's not where you're producing though your products no, no. <laughs> not at all much larger yes. than yes, that much larger than that yeah so uh, the, i was very happy to to ha- i mean actually to be honest the the sights and smells were very invigorating especially when we were pregnant with my second son when my sense of smell was so heightened um but now everything is cured in a, a different facility but you still kind of miss it like walking into the garage and seeing that there yeah. The uh, d- during our R and D f- phases um, towards the latter set of some of our R and D phases, uh, Milo was actually born, and I can remember because uh, this this specifically, um, Gerardo and I are in the kitchen and we are processing salami, and Kaz yells from the other side of the house, "We got to go to the hospital." <laughs> and I just leave Ferardo there to make salami in our kitchen while we're headed to go have our second child. While Declan's sleeping. And you're like, yeah. Okay, there you go. Right. Check it out. Uncle, Uncle right. Jerry's here. So back to scaling. We we were um, starting off with j- basically just moving our kitchen operation into a Texas inspected meat processing facility. Um, in principle, we hadn't we hadn't figured out scale very much. Uh, everything we were doing by hand, we were still using, you know, 30 pound stuffers or, or, you know, we upgraded to a 30 pound stuffer and we were processing everything very much small batch, small scale by hand, uh, very artisan. Um, we, we immediately had to grow up because, um, the amount that we could produce, we were, we were selling faster than, than we could make. And so we, we, it was a real tug, uh, it was a real balance, balancing act that we had to perform in order to keep that artisan, keep the hand tying, keep the, keep the things that matter to us uh, while scaling up into the hundreds of pounds and thousands of pounds. And I think like even aside from that is actually then making sure that we had farmers that would work with us or farming ourselves um, to be able to support that quantity um, really right. At, at that point, learning that we kind of needed to raise them ourselves in order to get them the way that we wanted. Yeah, let's talk about that part and like paint a picture of yeah. how you evolved to also, you know, be raising yeah. pigs and, and involved in that Kaz, process. Kaz mentioned that the pork was going to be a, a, a major point for us. Uh, that sounds like obvious until you realize to what level uh, we need this pork. Um, and I think also that we wanted them happy. So like, like just to throw a statistic out there, um, there are 75 million pigs that are currently being raised or hogs, um, you know, to support all the pork needs in our country. And they're just not raised well. Um, they're raised in close quarters. They're fed corn and soy in order to fatten them up quickly. Um, they don't have 
really a long life um, by the time they get to your table. And so for us, it's again, um, you know, just getting back to wanting to make sure that whatever we eat is, is going to live a happy life. And if we're going to be selling it, we want to make sure that um, ultimately we're caring for the animal as well. And so... And even breed, right? I mean, that was probably a whole other learning curve of like beyond organic yeah. or pasture-raised pork, what breed is going to mm-hmm. have a difference yeah. in our we, outcome? I, I, you know, joked earlier about being city slickers. We needed to learn everything, mm-hmm. everything. And well, I think at first we were hoping not to learn everything, but then we, yeah. <laughs> we learned okay. we had to. So I'll, so I'll take you, I'll take you down that yeah. path a little bit. We got a list of pork producers in Texas. It was, you know, several hundred pork producers. And we went one by one interviewing them for their practices. Um, by this point, we had determined we want pasture-raised pork. We want pork that is not fed corn and soy. We want pork that uh, is not confined. Um, we, we want, and, and then we added that we'd actually like it to be more mature for salumi because we're going to wind up curing its muscles, um, not just grinding it into sausage. So we, we came up with this criteria. We started interviewing farmers. Um, the ones who weren't immediately um, offended. <laughs> annoyed with your yeah. questions. Annoyed. Yeah. So, so I was a hipster, you know, uh, all three of us who are making these calls. We're all hipsters from Austin asking for something that is ridiculous <laughs> yeah. that we're going to ask them to change their operations for. And in two months, we're not going to be here anymore. Yeah. That's that's how we're being received, right? Or or they're willing to abide by some of it. So I think some of the standards that we all you know look for on labels like pasture raised, um, even to chickens like you know free range, all of these are just terms. And if you don't really know your mm-hmm. farmer, you yes. don't know exactly what that means for them because it's very easy to check that box. But for us, I wasn't or we weren't about just checking that box. It had to literally be pasture raised for its entire life for for me to feel comfortable about. Um, actually, you know, letting other people try it and, and consuming it ourselves. To conclude that little story, we found out after after trying to make contact with every single pork producer in Texas, we're going to have to raise our own pork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So luckily we found Jim at Richardson Farms who was uh, kind enough to want to work with us. He's actually, you know, he raises cows and chickens and, and hogs as well on his land. Um, and I think he was looking for a partner like us that would be willing to help regenerate his soil in a really great uh, fashion and adding more animals to his mix would, would give him the opportunity to do that. Plus we were just young city slickers that I think he kind of actually enjoyed um, with the idea of would be around more. So Jim Richardson is absolutely um, a saint. He, he is a wonderful, wonderful man with pure ideals and values he wants what's best for animals he wants what's best for his land and he wants what's best for his consumers uh he he is like the majority of our farming industry he's hamstrung by the amount of power that he has to make these wishes come true Uh, one thing that we were able to offer him was just the force of hundreds of hogs we can just till his land mm-hmm. fast with the power of now we're up to thousand hogs. We can take a thousand hogs and just chew up acres and acres at a time. And so he, you know, what he would have loved to do done is what we're now helping him do. But when you've only got a few animals, uh, you just can't do much. You, you have to use machine tilling and you have to do everything you can in order to get ready for the next season. And, and so 
where his ideals were, where he wanted to be and where he could be weren't aligned yet. So let's talk about how you got to a thousand plus pigs, because I think I remember at some point it was like a hundred, 150 or what did you guys start with? And how involved are you with like husbandry and when there are baby piglets and how does that whole, how's that learning curve been? (laughs) So, so while we're here in the comforts of this air conditioning, uh, Gerardo just put his knife down to go to the farm. And so that's what our day to day looks like. We are, we're, we're not a significantly large group. Um, but we do, you know, put ourselves everywhere. So our, we are daily, daily looking after all of these animals. And, uh, it's a great question because from, from raising 40 hogs, uh, to raising a couple of hundred hogs, the, uh, the, it is infinitely more challenging. They are, these animals are super strong. They're super smart. They're very inquisitive. Uh, they, they're like, they're like a thousand little escape artists. <laughs> yeah. I remember you, when we were on site, you guys were trying to figure out how to like move them right from pasture mm-hmm. to pasture and like, what was the plan and was mm-hmm. there a gate or what were you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you had had, you had sprayers set up in their hay bins. Let's talk a little yeah. bit more about that. Like how, like their living environment and yeah. how they move so, about. So, so now that we're into the summer, uh, these are the, these are the crucial months for us. The difference, if it were 10 degrees hotter than it is today, these animals would die. Like that's the balance that we have. That, that's how crucial the, the steps that, we're, that we take are. Uh, we've, we have developed a misting system for them on the hot days where it triggers. They get to basically just bathe in, in water and they love it and they're perfectly comfortable. And it's right in close proximity to uh, sources of food for them. So they don't have to go far. In these hot, hot days, they don't have to do much. And they're very, very comfortable in the cold. What I'll say is, if, it, if, we, didn't have the, if we didn't have these misting systems, and let's say it wasn't 10 degrees hotter, they would go search for something more comfortable. They would wind up just barreling through our fences. <laughs> and, and they would find out that, okay, there's nothing more comfortable there. And then they'd have to barrel back through them because where, where their food is. I want to go back to the spa. (laughs) Yeah. And so what we wound up, what we wind up with is a set of circumstances where, um, now we've got fences to mend. Now we've got sprinkler systems to keep up with, you know, we've got, um, the water running off. We've got to put more, uh, bedding inside of their, um, their shade and there's all, and there's all these things where the point I'm making is nothing about the way we've chosen to raise these animals is easy. It is that they, they have, they have, we have already come up with solutions for all of the problems that we're facing today. Let's put them in a building. Let's put them on concrete. Let's feed them right next to where they're standing. Let's keep them cool. Let's keep them comfortable. Let's feed them fast. And so but that's, that's just not natural. So, I mean, that just wasn't for us. That's how the pork industry is created. Right, right. Um, I think it's it's interesting. Like we've, I mean, obviously, Ellie, you've been out there with us um, and we bring our kids all of the time and it's fun to kind of go like, so we started with just 60 acres and um, again, there would be crops. We call it the salad bar for them to be able to munch on and just the salad bar is moved depending on which areas of um, which acreage we wanted them to pasture that that week or <clears throat> but what's interesting, I think, is we've built these kind of hoop houses for them to have 
to be able to, you know, have shelter from. We've got misting systems in it. But you'll sometimes go there on a Saturday in July and the, you know, again, like a year ago, maybe we only had 500 pigs, let's say at that point. Um, and we'd be like, where are they? Like you look and we moved from just like the 60 acres to 250 acres. And so the, the area that they were allowed to roam, um, just grew. And then they would be like in the tree line in the, mm-hmm. you know, a big pile of mud, you know, <laughs> like they're just happy. And then our kids were happy to be able to go kind of play in the mud with them. Yeah. And so it's, it's really interesting to see, um, you know, I think they just prefer to live in a natural environment. We still provide all of the great luxuries at the spa for them. I like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if they're still hogs at the end of the day. The spa and the salad bar. Tell yeah. us more about the, <laughs> the salad bar and their diet. So you mentioned conventionally, you know, pigs mm-hmm. being fattened on corn mm-hmm. and soy. Mm-hmm. What have you guys learned there? And, and how does that even influence, like, the flavor of oh, your yeah. product? Okay, so, so attacking this from two different sides. We sure. want... We want healthy pork. We also want the most delicious salumi you'll ever taste. And uh, if you look at the practices in Italy and the practices in Spain, uh, they're acorn fed. They're they're out yep. on the on the pasture. They're they're they live three four years for a hog. A hog gets to be five hundred pounds instead of you know a grocery store pork is cold around two hundred and fifty pounds. Like these are just magnificent creatures that are, that this is the way that they do it in Europe where, you know, this was born. Um, Our hogs for deliciousness are let to be, they're they're let to grow. They're led to be really large animals. They're really mature in their flavor. And for their diet, there's no corn and no soy. Everything is done slowly. Uh, we do we do give them a regular diet of grains that are grown on the land that they're currently on. So that would be milo, it would be oats, it would be wheat, it would be something that is taken off of the land and it would be just given to them without any work. Uh, also for their fat and their protein, they're getting peanuts. Also, it's not directly off of our land, but it's local here to Texas. So we're taking peanuts and we're taking the local grains and that's what they're allowed to just eat until they can't anymore. Mm -hmm. But as far as the salad bar is concerned, that is seasonal. Uh, We'll give them, it could be anything from winter grasses to uh, leafy vegetables to tubules. It doesn't matter. Um, and, And they aren't rows. We just, it's mixed seed that is tossed haphazardly out into the field and then it just shoots up with all of the water and organic activity in the ground and then the hogs go and knock it all down that's awesome and they do i mean i always like to highlight like it's really fun at halloween time because we get to feed them all of the pumpkins and in the summer the boys love to eat watermelon with them (laughs) (laughs) together so it's just yeah what one thing when you watch these hogs you'll unleash a green field and within a couple of weeks it is decimated to where it's just a muddy field Mm -hmm. there's no green left on it at all and then you'll move them somewhere else and it's not three days later where it is green again and you can't even believe it it's 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 like magic i mean the way that the earth um is able to regenerate itself is actually kind of amazing and to see it happen before your eyes is amazing Awesome. I love that. And let's talk about the breed and uh, heritage, you know, so I think again, like beef 
to most consumers maybe has a little bit more of an education in the sense of consumers are familiar with Wagyu or Angus and things like that. But I think in the world of pork, for most, it's not really a very familiar known of the various forms of breeds that are out there, the genetics. Um, let's talk about what you guys are working with as yeah. far as breeds and why yeah. that matters. You know what? Um, different breeds have different anatomy. And one of the really fun R&D projects for Gerardo and I, Gerardo is an artist with a knife. He will break down these animals and just determine that a Berkshire will give you the prosciutto and that a Hampshire will give you the copas and the lanzas. And before long, you know, like when we get a, a herd of a specific breed, we're like, oh man, we're going to put out incredible fiocos and panchettas with these. And so that's what's exciting for us. Uh, heritage breeds were, you know, they originally come from just the desire to properly marble pork. And so you, you're, you're looking at a very specific bloodline that is for flavor. And when you start to muddy that bloodline a little bit, um, it's a crapshoot of what you're going to get. And so when you're talking about quality and you're talking about taste, and you're talking about behavioral issues and you're talking about um, potential uh, um, likelihood to get you know sick or whatever infections, yeah. infections. Mm -hmm. they, there a lot of a lot of this is de highly dependent on the type of breeds that you get so we do have a very specific set of breeds that we bring in um, mostly for performance as far as our our final products are concerned and by taking care of our sourcing and everything else we can make sure that uh, we're not introducing pathogens that we're, that we're unprepared for or anything to that effect because we don't use antibiotics. We don't use anything unnatural. We're not vaccinating our hogs. We're not doing anything. We're, we're taking piglets and we're raising them um, just from the feed and the land. And probably that lack of sterility, again, you go back to that COFA or that confined animal farming concept that's the standard, that when you get this robust ecology and they're participating in their own ecosystem, that is creating this robust immune response, yes. which then doesn't require yes. as much add-in. And so you kind of give that to God or nature and, and are there to kind of steward and facilitate the process versus over-input, over-amend, over-modify. I'll give you an example of how this is present. We we do not get to keep the livers from our pork, which is a shame because we would love to use the livers. The reason we don't get to keep the livers is because everything has to be slaughtered at a, at a USDA facility under inspection before it comes to us where we continue to process under USDA inspection. When those livers are harvested, they will be marred with scar tissue. And that scar tissue comes from worms, it comes from parasites or whatever, usually from when they were little. And by the time that they are adults or they fully matured, their body has learned how to handle these parasites or these, these uh, you know, whatever might have ailed them at the time. Uh, in order for us to use those livers, we would have to have that scar tissue biopsied. Then we'd have to come back, it would be negative for any cancer or whatever, and then we would be allowed to process them but that that's too costly and too time consuming. Um, we would have to quarantine all of those hogs. And by the time we've got the test results back, we'd take them out of quarantine. And it, it, it's unfortunately the, the process is not 
it kind of fails us to to use pasture raised pork liver, which mm-hmm. is such a shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when so many nutrients live in the in the right, liver to begin right. with. We talk about that all the time mm-hmm. to our listeners. What about other areas where you've run into hurdles or red tape like that in the processing, the labeling, just the politics of being on yeah. this side of yeah. food production? I, you know, actually, I want to address it in the opposite way. Um, There's so many claims that are completely unregulated where um, as long as we sign an affidavit that says we're doing something, mm. then they say, okay, then you can do it. Yeah. And so so we say pasture race. We say we don't feed them soy. We say we don't feed them corn. We say that they're gluten-free. We say that they're keto-friendly. We say all of these things that really mean something to us. And we also look at a, at a you know, something else off of the shelf. And we know just inherently to question like, are they actually yeah. doing that? Right. Because I know we are. And even yeah. to the level of like nutrient analysis, you do your own nutrient analysis now that you're growing scale to be in central market. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm assuming that you need nutrition facts on your products to some yeah. level. Yes. Um, and that's done by the producer, right? Yes. And so there's so much integrity that goes into the company that you're, you know, giving your money to mm-hmm. and you're part of your sovereignty of your body if you're bringing that product into your body. Um, into your household and I think that that's a big trust piece and the importance of really getting to know our ranchers our growers and supporting small-scale family operations that are doing this with the right reasons um, and decentralizing mass production absolutely I think one thing I was surprised to find when we were in investigating how to do how to get those nutritional facts how to really analyze to make sure that we we had the it was you know, going to be shelf-stable and not going to make anyone sick, let's say, in a few weeks after eating it, is that it's not really always mandatory. Like, you had to produce to a certain amount before mm-hmm. it was mandatory. And I was like, well, that doesn't make me feel good. Like, I, let's go ahead and pay for this. I, I remember telling him, because I, I want to make sure for my own self that then, you know, it's it's all that we think it is. Um, and so it's it's interesting to see even some people like discouraging, like, well, you don't have to do that yet. You haven't gotten to that size yet. It's like, well, we want the integrity today, you know, so. I would like to say that uh, we, we're one of maybe two in the state of Texas that is under federal inspection that cures meats. And what I mean by cures meats specifically is to ferment them and to reduce the water activity in them until the point where they are shelf stable. Uh, we never never add heat, so salami is not cooked. Um, it, you know, you'll see the term "cooked salami," but that is kind of an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. We, in order to do this, we are we are we are done. We have a, a a federal inspector at our facility every day that we process, and so there's somebody there to oversee that we are following the rules. Um, the challenge here is that. There, there are no rules for us. There's nobody, we're writing the rules, which I'm very comfortable doing. Um, but I guess one thing I have, I've really learned is that we need to set the standards for ourselves and, and make sure that everybody else knows our standards and be comfortable with that. Yeah, totally. And I think we've gotten a good picture now of like, pigs, the processing, let's talk the actual 
curing now the mm. the fun part right um so walk us through that journey of you know from processing the pig you mentioned like certain muscles being yeah. specific to certain yeah. cuts so let's talk about that and let's talk maybe on some of your favorite cuts or products to highlight right now i would love to would love to uh there is um there's so much science that goes into curing uh something at a at, to, to be predictable in curing so i cured all my life and all we did was hang things in the basement or the garage and I don't even mean in a refrigerator. I just mean we hung them in the open air. And so what, what I did not know was, was it actually fermenting? Or, and what I did not know is, was it actually shelf stable? Yes, it's funny you mentioned that, Anthony, because I remember being at your home when Kaz was pregnant with Milo and I, I had consumed some of your cured meat before and thought it was delicious of course and I remember Kaz saying very nonchalantly like oh yeah well what we do to test that it's good is we let Anthony eat it and then we wait like three to five days and if he doesn't have diarrhea or if he's alive uh-huh. then I let my kids eat it then, botulism then clear <laughs> yes I was the botulism test and you're so still here clearly yeah. from that yeah. clearly we're okay yeah Let's also not take into account that I've been eating it my whole life and, and have uh, certain <laughs> immunities. Right, yeah, I'm right, sure right. Your, your microbiome is prepared. That's yes. funny. <laughs> That's really funny. So, yeah, so we had to figure out how are we going to make sure we can give this product to people. Um, I went to school for biomedical engineering. I got my undergraduate and master's degree in biomedical engineering, and I have practiced more biomedical engineering post my engineering career. Mm-hmm. I believe it. <laughs> I am all of a sudden uh, consumed with organic chemistry, microbiology. I, I am calculating the amount of, of lactic acid that will be created as a byproduct from lactic acid starter consuming the amount of sugars that I put into my salami on a daily basis. These are, these are, now, these are now actual calculations that I am making using uh, formulas and a lot of variables and inputs versus... Uh, throwing it up on the rafters in the garage, right? <laughs> um, once once we figured out to to you know what what the requirements for the pHs were, what like at what point at what pH level do we need in order to kill the very last organism? You know, so that gives us our upper threshold that we call those critical control points. So that what is our critical control point for our pH? We we figured that out. Then what is the water activity for where nothing can harbor, nothing, nothing can go in there and start living again? Uh, and so that becomes another critical control point. And so before long, we've got, a, you know, we've got the, the confines of, of where we're allowed to live. And then it was a matter of getting the instruments and practicing and creating the procedures and understanding exactly how we affect those numbers. How do we get the pH to drop? How fast to drop? You know, where do we actually want it to stop? We know where it needs to stop. Do we want to go a little further for flavor or for other things? Same with water activity as far as texture or just a, a, a you know, for, for a, an experience. Um, so those were, those were wonderful, extremely interesting tests that we got to, um, play with batch after batch until we've got a, a repeatable process. On the front of um, breaking down the hogs, and uh, this is something where I've broken down many hogs, and uh, 
um, I'm sure you can think of, of, an, of a comparison in, in something in your life where you, no matter how many times you do it, it's like you hit the, the level at which you'll never be better than. I am, um, I can break a hog down in order to get parts. Gerardo can take a knife and he can, he can go across every connected tissue without slicing into a single piece of meat or muscle to the point where you can put those muscles back on the bones. You can put the skin back on the animal. He can completely reconstruct it. You can walk in and not know that it has been broken down yet. I think um, Gerardo was really the one that taught us to honor the whole animal. So I think we had this whole, you know, just really amazing, you know, triangle between the, the three of us. Um, he really believes from nose to tail that these these animals are special and that we need to, if we're going to consume them, um, not only raise them well, but then also honor them through even just the butchering process. So um, I like the way that you described that, Anthony, because I think it's it's important to say that he, he takes his time and he's delicate with them because he wants to make sure that, you know, each and every animal that's kind of sacrificed is, is done so properly. One product that I'll highlight is uh, our guanciale. I think our guanciale is perhaps what it personifies all of our values in one piece. And it's what it's, it's really a special experience. What you've got with the guanciale and what the guanciale is, is it's the jowl meat. Um, the, it's the meat that if you were to take a knife and you were to go under the orbital, under the mandible and you're all the way connection sites, all the way to the shoulder, you would be able to pull off this, uh, enormous piece of meat that is extremely irregular shaped. It will have very thick portions right where the cheeks are the fattest. And it'll be very thin and tapered all the way to where it connects under the neck and over the neck and on the shoulders. And in our desire to not waste, uh, we redefined the way that you serve guanciale. If you're to go to the grocery store and you're to buy a piece of guanciale, typically it would look like uh, it would be a quadrilateral of some sort, a trapezoid or a, a, you know maybe a triangle. And it would be a flat piece. It would be basically something you just stick a hook through, you'd let it dry, and then you'd package it and send it off. And the reason that it looks like that is because they've cut off all the irregular pieces and you're left with somewhat of a regular shaped flat piece of meat. Um, in order to use, I mean, that is, that is probably without exaggeration, wasting 40 to 50% of the meat, of the jowl meat. Wild. So we will roll that in a way that we can stuff it into a casing and then we will cure the entire thing. And by rolling it, the thin parts get to cure at the same rate as the thick parts. Mm -hmm. And you wind up with a rolled piece of cured muscle that is, it's sensational and it's hard to fathom discarding that meat. Amazing. Make our mouths water a little more. <laughs> um, tell us. I guess what other um, favorite products you have, and um, also let's just talk about um, curing agents a little bit. I know we cool. hit Swiss chard for yeah. a second, yeah. Um, but what what are we adding in this cool. magic process? I, of <laughs> if you're talking about the magic, you should talk about the pekin because that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> favorite oh, yeah. ingredient. Yeah, my we, favorite ingredient. I'll I'll, I'll start with the uh, with the curing agents. The, um, one of my favorite things to tell people is that when you get our salami, you are only getting pork, salt, and spices. Uh, we, 
we do, we do several things that are different than grocery store salami. And one of those things is we don't use any homogenizers or binding agents, artificial colors. There's not a single artificial ingredient whatsoever, including, including sodium nitrate or sodium nitrite. So we will use Swiss chard, uh, as Kaz mentioned earlier, um, and that will have naturally um, formed nitrates. Uh, we will use um, cherries because cherries have ascorbic acid in them. We'll use um, you know salt other than that, and those are the, those are the agents that we use to cure meat. Uh, the rest of it is done through science. The rest of it is done through fermentation and through uh, water activity. So if you've ever gotten salami from the grocery store and it has spoiled on you in the fridge, um, that is because it's not actually shelf stable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's, that's kind of obvious by definition of shelf stability. But uh, if you know that... Um, Salami was intended to be cured, and cured means to remove water until it is shelf-stable, then kind of by definition, spoiled salami can't, it can't be a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So, so we're, we really uh, pay a lot of attention and, and harken back to the day where we cure meats for shelf-stability. And that means, I tell people, there's no need to refrigerate this. Uh, what we do at our house is we put a stick of salami on our cutting board, and it stays on the cutting board until we finish it. And it sometimes that's a few days and sometimes it's a few weeks. But regardless, once that one is complete, then we put another stick on the cutting board. And it, none of our salami ever sees the fridge. We don't take up any refrigerator space with any salami. Asterix, except for the piggy sticks. Our piggy sticks are probably my favorite product and those I like in the fridge. I prefer them refrigerated too, just, <laughs> just for like textural, but exactly. they're also, I know, shelf stable for me to like run around in the car or throw in the diaper, diaper bag. bag. So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You want to tell them about piggy sticks? Yes. That's yeah, not actually a product name. <laughs> the Salumini. Exactly. I'm sorry. Correction. Um, <laughs> it's a cute name though. It is a cute name. Uh, we did have a, a competition to name them and my heart was a little sunk when they didn't go by piggy sticks. Um, but they, you know, those are, those are my favorite. So she's like, I'm on the microphone and I'm <laughs> yep. saying it. Yep. <laughs> um, what we all know them as. So. That's true, actually. <laughs> um, you know, they, they, those are my favorite just because I think as a mom, it, they're just the yes. easiest thing to toss in my bag just because they're so easy. Like Anthony said, we always have a stick of salami on our cutting board. Um, and that's really great when we're home to just cut off a slice. And I find myself doing that kind of all day long. Um, whenever it's snack time, maybe I put it on a salad or, um, you know, we'll have it with an apple. Uh, but the, the piggy sticks or the salaminis, um, as they're better known, uh, are just really great to put in. And then at any point in time, you know, we're at the park and we're hungry, we can pull those out and have them. Um, and I love that they're in a variety of flavors. So for the, for the uninitiated, a salamini is salami. It's just made in a very small diameter. So it's kind of for listeners, the most delicious elevated experience of what you would assume like a chomps meat stick would be. Um, they're not homogenous, which I love. Uh, so often when we're looking at like a grass fed sausage or again, like a, a meat stick of sorts, it's all the same texture and you bite it, you chew it and your, your body doesn't even do much. You of course get the protein and it's, you know, moderate in flavor profile. But when you bite into a salumini, 
there's this really ancestral primal digestive response that occurs. Like I'm, I'm almost salivating just talking about it, but you get much more of a salivary pool experience. Uh, the chewing component is much more deeply satisfying. So I find that that creates a lot of satiety. It mellows out children. (laughs) Anyone that's hangry needs protein and fat. And so it's a really great delivery of there, but the texture and the complexity I think is what really is not comparable to anything on the market. And then the convenience factor, I think, is just super huge. Um, let's talk about the flavors that are offered in that. And let's also talk about casing. Because um, I think that's a part of the yeah. curing yeah. process that we haven't really addressed yet. Cool. Uh, flavors, we we really spend a lot of time um, paying a lot of homage to Italy. And that's um, basically you know where this all began for my family. Uh, these flavors, um, they're not necessarily family recipes. Uh, we do have a family recipe. We call it the OG and, uh, and hopefully you, you'll try that one. Um, it's probably my favorite, but I also grew up with that flavor. So it's a little nostalgic. Uh, we, we basically paint a box that we can play within. We say, okay, in this region of Italy, they had these flavors. And so we wouldn't go take a salami, let's say, with Calabrian peppers from the south, and we use something really floral like nutmeg or, or cinnamon from the north and create our own salami. That's just not where our intention was. Our intention was, all right, let's make a Calabrian salami. What did they do? They used sweet wine. They used hot and sweet peppers. They used, you know, in, in one case... Um, they used pistachios and we made a pistachio salami that used those hot and sweet Calabrian peppers with pistachios. And that's how that flavor was invented for us. Uh, we didn't, we didn't invent the wheel. We just crafted a salami in the, in, you know, in that box that they would have made salamis from in Calabria. And we did that for every region we could, we could thoroughly explore. And we wound up with 16, um, extremely diverse flavors throughout the state of or the uh, country of Italy. I have to throw in the tartufo. That's one of my favorites. So that's truffle for all of you listeners. Who doesn't love truffle? That's always my like party trick when mm-hmm. I'm entertaining guests that I bust out. Um, you mentioned the OG, which that one has fennel, and that's one of my favorites as well. Um, and then the felina with red wine and garlic was another yeah. one that I wrote down as like our... S- kind of three Thank you. favorites. Thank yes. you. Oh, and you mentioned the pekin. Let's yes, talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. So the pekin is, is kind of a, a fun one. Um, it's my favorite spice to add to just about anything. Um, and it may be attributed to why I went into labor with Milo. <laughs> I put it on lasagna the night before mm. I, had, I had Milo. Good um, trick. Noted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it's really hard to find. Um, and we, had a, we have a friend um, that actually grows it and would grind it. And then I would you know, whenever my jar was empty, we'd kind of just shoo it to her, her to make, to give me more. Um, and so I think for me, I was like, can we put this in a salami? Is this something that we can actually, you know? So this is one of those examples where we use an outside um, ingredient, but we replace, we, we made a Calabrian, a spicy Calabrian salami. We just, instead of using a Calabrian pepper, we use the Pekin pepper. So it is it is a bit of an aberration uh, from Calabria, but you know not not disrespectfully. And your 
are you drawing those yourself or what I hear you're sourcing them? Well, we, so for a long time when we would just make it and it was hanging in our garage, yes, it was sourced locally, um, with someone, um, that again, that's just a dear friend. But by the time we, we wanted to scale it, cause after he made it, at least for me, it was my favorite. Yeah. Um, I said, well, we have to bring this one to market. So can um, you please make us a thousand pounds of yes. that? <laughs> and this was just a nice friend that was, you know, growing She's these like, in her backyard. backyard garden. <laughs> <laughs> won't accommodate yeah, that. Friends <laughs> support this. That's, it took me 12 hours to make that little jar for you. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would go through, at one point I was going through it pretty frequently and I, I was told to like lay off the spice. What's <laughs> the flavor profile of it? Describe it. It's, um. It's very heat forward. Yes. It doesn't. It isn't one that'll sneak up on you. It'll immediately let you know it's hot. It will turn my cheeks rosy like almost immediately. Um, even talking about it, I feel like I'm getting hot. <laughs> um, but it's 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 a gentle spice. Like even though I say it's it's it will hit you, um, it's it's just really it's really nice. It's not like a jalap uh, or habanero that will burn you. Mm-hmm. It's not like a jalapeno that will sometimes bite you. It's just it's the spice is just consistent. Yeah, maybe a little sweeter, less smokier. Yeah. Okay, that's better. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and let's talk about the reaper since yeah. we're talking I was gonna about. I going to say it's not spice. the reaper, right? <laughs> <laughs> May kill you. So, the reaper is another Calabrian salami where we chose reaper. We we experimented with every pepper we could. And the reason we wound up with the with a Carolina reaper in our salami is so many times you have a product uh, with Carolina Reaper in it, it is just meant to burn your face off. It just hurts. And nobody has any idea what this pepper tastes like because it's not meant for you to taste it. It's just meant to hurt you. It's not delivered in delicious lipids of pork, right. typically. <laughs> so so combine that, that, combine that with mellowing it through the aging process. And now all of a sudden you've got a salami that really highlights the flavor of this pepper and it's such a wonderful flavor uh every time i get to share this with somebody they're blown away that it tastes so good and it is really i mean the the salami just highlights the flavor of the pepper so everybody's surprised that a carolina reaper first of all that they can eat it and secondly that it tastes so good one thing i think i like about that one in particular is it like you said it you you can actually take a bite of it without feeling the heat right away and so you actually can enjoy it the heat kind of hits you later yeah that's a little heat like delayed reaction delayed heat yeah yeah awesome let's uh this has been such a fun conversation let's share with our listeners what you guys are up to next what goals are for the future of the salumeria and then um we'll also share where listeners can find your products and such but let's start first with what's like the five-year vision or what's coming um we we are, we are constantly building out our facilities. And what I will say is every time we think we have um, broken ground on something that is, that is like double our needs, by the time we, we set boots on the ground, we've outgrown it. <laughs> and so we, we are really focused on building up our production um, because there's this... Uh, our track record so far has been uh, with, you know, make it, make it, you know, build it and they will come. And so we've just focused on production and not so much on sales and the sales have always been ahead of us. I think we're getting to the point where we really want to get this story out. We really want people to know what we're doing with our hogs. We really want people to, to care where their pork comes from and to care about, um, being being responsible in how they select their food 
you know, as their, you know, regulars. And so right now, Kaz is really spending all of her time just laying the foundation for getting, getting the messaging right and finding out how to make an impact and on who and, and what to say and where to, where to go and who to talk to. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, in terms of seeing us in five years, I, for us, I just would love to see more families enjoying our product and, and realizing that it's something that you can have every day. Um, and to not go for, you know, a snack that's sort of conventional, but, but to try our product because it's, it's one that can just nourish you in a really wonderful way. And so I, I mean, I would love to see that more. Um, and then even just other products, um, we make a really great bacon that we really haven't brought to market yet. Um, and I would love to see us do something with our bones. Um, making a bone broth is something I'd love to do too. So I've enjoyed being on the R and D side yes. of the bacon, <laughs> the bacon experiment. Number nine, number 11, number 10. I'm like, Ooh, which is the coffee uh-huh. grounds one? I'm uh-huh. digging it. Uh-huh. So I think everyone's going to love that. You haven't well. been all that helpful because every one of them, you say yes. Yes. <laughs> Cause they're <good>. all delicious. <laughs> Um, tell us about your uh, monthly cure box. Thank I know you. that's a big product yeah. to highlight. So, and this go this I think this goes in line with um, also one of the one of the projects that we really want to take charge of is we want to build a, a direct consumer market. We want to build a relationship with our consumers. Uh, what we've done in a smaller scale here in Texas is um, we've built a community of it's basically our test kitchen. Um, this is, I think it's the coolest thing we do where we're constantly working with, uh, local chefs or seasonal products, or we're making small batches of, of different, uh, opportunities that we get to experiment with. And from those small batches, we just ship them out to our cure box subscribers. And so monthly, uh, you, you, if you were to, to subscribe to our cure box program, uh, occasionally you might get one of our regulars, but typically you're going to get things that are not on the menu and, uh, we wouldn't send it out if we thought it was abhorrent, but, uh, we do want honest feedback and we've, we've built a community of people that are just happy to immediately tell us their thoughts. And I will say one of our most popular products is our Spanish chorizo. Um, we worked with a chef, um, who asked specifically for us to try to make one. We researched the heck out of it. We imported paprika from Spain. We smoked it ourselves. We imported a sherry from Spain and we wound up making this chorizo that we were really excited about. We sent it to our cure box. The, the, um, response was so overwhelming that it is now like our third best selling item and we make it the most regular. And so that all came, I mean, that, that feedback mechanism from the cure box is what got us here. So that's how we benefit. Uh, the way that the cure box benefits is every month you're going to get a box of salami that, you know, we're excited to share with you. So you can select small, medium, and large, just two, three, or four pieces that you get on a monthly basis. And, uh, and then every month be surprised with, with a selection of salami. It's like a CSA type situation yeah. where you get surprised with a different flavor profile. Yeah. Keeps you yeah. on your toes. Yeah. Fun for playing with wine pairings and dinner like parties. We and need that. to sign up for this. Yeah. I'm convinced. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And um, let's talk also about your line that is available in retail markets. 
Yes. Uh, so we have a retail line called Adagio Salumi. And with our, our retail lineup, we are looking to give you uh, the the very best high-end elevated experience that we can from our pastured pork. Uh, you, you can find it uh, here in Texas. You can find it at Central Market. And we're, uh, we've got Northeast and um, Midwest and California uh, distributors who are also distributing the item uh, or the items. So we're super, super excited about the uh, Adagio lineup. Awesome. And then, so at the Salumaria website, that's where listeners can directly purchase, select whatever products they want that you have available, and then get that Cure Box subscription. Correct. And you all shared that you had a special discount for our listeners that yes. they could use the code Allie Miller RD and they get 15% off their first order. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So everyone's going to love that. We'll definitely put that in the show notes. Thank you. And then um, let's just let listeners know um, just finally, I guess, websites and where they can find you and stay active in your journey. Thank you. So uh, the salamaria.com is our our homepage uh, for everything that is basically our history and everything about us. And you can get salamaria products. Uh, Adagiosalumi.com is is the uh, Adagio products. It's the it's the new generation, and it's where we want to really push our direct-to-consumer, uh, you know, packages where where you can select uh, monthly, um, quarterly. You can get um, you know twelve-month, three-month, or gift boxes. All kinds of things from AdagioSalumi.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, y'all, for being on here. I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation, and I know they'll even more enjoy this conversation when they're having a bite of their first experience of your products. So deeply satisfying and nourishing, and um, we're just really grateful to know y'all as friends and to you know have others in our community that are using the same mission of driving food as medicine forward and ensuring that integrity and principles of really honoring the earth as well as honoring the animals is all coming into fruition through your awesome company so we're super proud and excited to know y'all and um, happy to have had you on thank you so much for having us we really love being here yeah thank you Allie thank you Becky Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.